Mark chapter 8. And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And as Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. At the beginning of this text, Jesus heals a blind man twice. Why? Why did he have to do it twice? Uh, was Jesus' miracle power running out, or, or was he just getting tired? Or maybe that blind man didn't have enough faith or something to be healed well the first time. No, none of the above. Uh, we have said before that Jesus' miracles that we see in Mark, they are like living parables. They're illustrations of what Jesus is teaching. And his progressive healing of this blind man is an illustration of how he is progressively healing the disciples, progressively teaching them who he is and what he's up to. And here's what we see in today's text. He gets crystal clear, and he teaches them that the Messiah must suffer. Must suffer to save them. And they need to be healed uh, because they don't see Jesus clearly yet. They see Jesus as bringing some sort of glory to them. 
He's going all over the Sea of Galilee. He's healing. Crowds are following. And, you know, maybe Jesus is going to be the one who takes up a sword, overthrows the Romans. He lifts his, his, his military banner high in the breeze, and they can follow him into victory and glory. That's what they're starting to see Jesus as. But they don't see Jesus as a sufferer. And consequently, they don't see the point of suffering in their own lives. But they're going to need to understand, because Jesus, in, in these words, asks them to do the unimaginable. He asks them to take up their cross and follow him. Now, I think most of us in the room right now, we are in a similar state to Jesus' disciples. You know, we may see Jesus as nice and good and he's strong and he's kind, uh, but we are, we are left confused at the end of the day why we have so much pain and suffering in our own lives. And especially why he would ask us to add additional suffering, why he would ask us to take up a cross and follow him. So who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that he can ask people to do this, to come and die with him? Is he not the one who rides on horseback with his banner in the air? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus wants us to dwell on this question. We, he wants us to dwell on him. Look at verse 29. He asks the disciples this nagging question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He puts this question in their hearts like spit in their eyes. Who do you say that I am? And as we've seen so often this summer through Mark's gospel, the answer is, is rarely explicit. Jesus wants us to chew on his words and meditate on it. But here it is. Who is Jesus? He is the God of glory with the banner in the breeze. But the God of glory is the God who suffers. That's the big idea here. The God of glory is the God who suffers. And he invites each one of us to join him in that, in both his glory but also his suffering. And he wants us to see this clearly, to move from a blurry vision to a clear vision. So we're going to look at this text really in two big parts today. Blurry vision, number one, blurry vision can't see the point in suffering. Point two. Clear vision sees the glory of God in suffering. Blurry vision can't see the point in suffering, but clear vision sees the glory of God in suffering. So let's start with point one. Blurry vision can't see the point in suffering. Let's take a moment to look at the story of the blind man that we find in the first paragraph of the text. Verse 22. Jesus and Bethsaida, and, and some people bring this blind man to him so Jesus can touch this blind man and heal him. And then verse 23 it's really, it's really sweet. Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and he walks out of the village. And so it's just him and this blind man and maybe some of the disciples. And then Jesus spits in his eyes. Now, I, 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 in my research, I couldn't find any like nuanced meaning, any like thing deeper in, in scripture about that. Feel free to email me if you have some idea. But I can see that Jesus spitting in this guy's eyes, it's intimate, it's close. Kind of like the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. It's like family. I mean, hopefully your family doesn't spit in your eyes. But, but it's, 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 it's intimate. It's, it's near. When Jesus first heals the blind man, though, 
it wasn't a total healing. It was a progressive healing. Uh, you know, after he healed him, uh, he said that he saw people, but they looked like trees walking. And he, he was looking at Jesus's face, but he, he couldn't tell the difference between Jesus and, and a shrub. So Jesus lays his hands on him again. And look at the end of verse 25. After Jesus touches him again, what does it say? He says, he saw everything clearly. Total restoration. Jesus sends him home afterwards, says to him, don't go talk to anybody, just go straight home. Again, we see Jesus trying to keep his identity secret for a while. So this story of this healing, it is the basis for everything that follows in the rest of, of this chapter. It is the story of how we get to see Jesus more clearly, progressing from blindness to partial sight to clear vision. And all of this is not something we do ourselves. It is a healing miracle of Jesus. And I want Jesus to heal us with his miraculous power this morning. Help all of us to see him more clearly. So this actually helps us make sense out of this spiritual roller coaster ride that Peter is on with Jesus in the next couple of paragraphs. So Jesus has already healed Peter of his blindness, you could say, because he's, he's following Jesus. He's following him up to Caesarea Philippi in, in verse 27. He's going all the way up away from the Sea of Galilee where Peter's from, and he's going up to like the northern part of the Golan Heights up there. Uh, and, and while they're going village to village, Jesus asks his disciples... Who do all these village people think that I am? Like, what are the theories going around? Who's Jesus? So the disciples start listing them off, verse 28. Uh, they, they say you're John the Baptist. You know, you remember how Herod said that? Well, they're saying that too. Uh, some people are saying you're Elijah. You know, there's that prophecy about Elijah. Maybe they think maybe you're the answer. Some people just say you're one of the prophets. Like, you've got the divine power of old. God's with you. But then Jesus asks the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter's shocking confession. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. That's what that word means. The anointed one of God. The great king who's going to come and he's going to make everything right again. The son of man from Daniel 7 who's going to come on clouds in glory. And you're going you're gonna to fix this mess that we're living in. You're going to get rid of the Romans. Their taxes. The way they take us away from true religion. You're going to clean this mess up. You're the Christ. Now, I don't want to diminish this statement by Peter because it is huge. In, in the history of redemption, it is huge that he sees that Jesus is the Messiah. And oh, if everybody had seen that Jesus was the Messiah. But it's only partial vision. It's huge, like a blind man going from darkness to seeing partial sight. But it's still trees walking. It's still just seeing the Messiah as one who vanishes the enemy. There, there's truth there, but it's blurry. So then Jesus starts teaching them what 2020 vision looks like. Please read along with me in verse 31. Verse 31 is important. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, we're going to return to these words a couple times. 
But this is very specific. This is 2020 focus on something that's going to happen to Jesus. See, the, the Messiah, he will have victory, but it must come through suffering. The Son of Man must suffer. Did you catch that in the text? The Son of Man of Daniel 7, who, who comes with all this glory and defeats the great beast, must suffer. Then enjoy glory. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is going to suffer before salvation comes for them. And he wasn't being cryptic. Look at verse 32. Just to underline this, Mark says, and he said this plainly. No secrets here. Plain speech. No trees walking. He's throwing out names. Chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, elders. Well, not Pharisees, elders. He, he knows that in three days he's going to be dead. He knows how many days his body will be in the tomb. He sees it clearly, and he teaches it clearly. See, blurry vision just these horses and glory, paid off hospital bills, your mortgage done, healing, two cars in every garage, cancer gone, marriage restored, quick fix to our immediate problems. That's what blurry vision looks for and sees, a quick fix. But clear vision sees a dead Messiah decomposing in a grave. Well, all the city and religious leaders are, are just toasting one another to a job well done. Then, resurrection after three days. Suffering. And in that suffering, a bright flash of glory that lasts for eternity. See, if, if you start to see that, then you're seeing the real Messiah, the real Jesus. The one who suffers in our place to satisfy the, the holy and good wrath of God. But Peter doesn't get that yet. He still sees trees walking. Because Jesus' description of the suffering Messiah doesn't fit with, with his blurry idea. Verse 32, Peter has the audacity to take Jesus, you know, put his arm around him, bring him aside, and then starts rebuking Jesus. Now, put that on your resume. See, Peter, a lot of people say that he's the one who's kind of telling Mark the, the stories that happen in the Gospel of Mark. Imagine Peter telling Mark this, the time he pulled Jesus, or Jesus aside to rebuke him. And he starts saying, no, Jesus, no, it's not going to be like that at all. You're not going to suffer. No, you're going to perform more miracles. Like, you're going to get all these crowds whipped up, and they will follow you into battle. And we will win. And I'm going to be at your right hand. And it's going to be nothing but glory and champagne. So could you stop being such a, a sourpuss about this, Jesus? Peter just can't see the point in this suffering. But, but after Peter says this, you know, Jesus, he jerks around and he looks at the disciples and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Cold as ice. Why? Here's why. Everything that Peter had just said to Jesus wasn't the first time that Jesus has heard it. Jesus heard those same sorts of things coming out of the mouth of Satan during Jesus' temptation. Whenever Satan was like, you're hungry? Turn these stones to bread. You, you want to be king of the world? Here, here, look, I will show you the kingdoms. Take it. All you got to do is worship me. Here, just have it. Go ahead. Get your glory. Get the quick fix. End this. 
See, by removing suffering from the equation, Peter actually ends up talking like Satan. And then Jesus gives a reason that, that why this way of thinking is so dark. Look at what follows in verse 33. It says, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A, a mind set on the things of man is somehow satanic. But, but what does Jesus mean by this? It's not that like our, our people and, and our lives here it don't matter. But, but if you treat suffering as what is to be most feared in life, then, then you're going to end up distorting not only your own suffering, but Jesus' suffering too. You're going to make the cross blurry if you blur your own suffering. And that's what it's going to mean to be deceived by Satan. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 8 when he tells Christians to set their minds on the things of the Spirit, saying, for you did not receive the spirit of, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, you've received the spirit of adoption as God's children. So, so cry out to him, Abba, Father. Jesus wants to heal us of this satanic blindness so that suffering would not drive us away from God but drive him to God. Just as some of you kids, whenever you are scared, you will look to your father for help and you will trust him even whenever you're scared. This is no light matter. This is not a game. This past week has been one of, of, of extreme tears and heartache for me. One of my dear friends and, and, and mentor, he, he got blurry vision and he lost the way. Like he and his, his family, they have suffered terribly the past couple of years. They've been hit with really bad medical news. A lot of just physical agony, mental agony, relational pain and suffering. Suffering has just crushed them. And my friend lost his way because he couldn't see the point in it. And he started searching for a quick fix Messiah. And tragically, he, he fell into substance abuse and, and became a threat to his own family. It's, it's disastrous all around. Now, I tell you this story because you and I need to take our suffering seriously in this life. Whether you're a Christian or not, how you handle suffering will either make you or destroy you. We must not be blinded. We must not misunderstand our suffering because if, if we simply shut it out and just try to cope with whatever mechanisms we can find in this life, we will, we will mess ourselves up. We will try to hunt down whatever Messiah we can that can save us from our problems, but we will lose sight of the true Messiah. So what about you? Has your own suffering revealed that you've been looking for a quick fix Messiah? Have you looked at alcohol and said, you are the Christ? In your loneliness and shame, have you looked to pornography and said, you are the Christ? In your anxiety, have you looked at your own anger as a way to control your relational problems and said, you are the Christ? 
You know, Peter may have been looking with, it, with Jesus with his physical eyes whenever he said that he was the Christ, but when Jesus saw into his heart what was really there, he saw a dangerous situation. He saw something satanic and twisted. Blurry vision cannot see the point in suffering. This leads us to part two. Clear vision sees the glory of God in suffering. Clear vision sees the glory of God in suffering. And God invites you to join him first in his suffering and then in his glory. Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. What a charge. I mean, should we talk about that verse this morning or not? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to follow Jesus into his glory, you must also follow him into his shame. Verse 35, you want to save your life? You got to lose it. Verse 36, you gain the whole world. All your problems are gone. It seems like all those prayer requests for this and that get answered and your life here is easy. You get all that, but you lose your soul in the midst of it. What's the point? Verse 38. Jesus says that if we are ashamed of him and his words, then he will be ashamed of us. So if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that there's lots of us in this room today who, who like, we would find it so much easier to live in Ottawa if we were ashamed of Jesus and his words. It, it, would, it would make a more comfortable life in some sense for us. Uh, if, if we weren't ashamed of his words on sexuality or sinfulness or, or this, that, or the other. But we're willing to follow him because even in our blurry vision, we've begun to, we've begun to see that there is something worth it in Jesus, something, something altogether wonderful that's worth following and having this social friction with, with the world around us. It, it costs us something, but it's worth it. Now, if you're a Christian here today, I want, I want to be clear about what this text is asking of us, what this cost is. Every week, your pastors here, we try to comfort you with the gospel. We try to show Jesus to you as the great relief from all your sin and suffering and the one who can give you peace in the here and now. Jesus is wonderful, and there is nothing about that that is not true, and that is what we want to give you. But we would be acting as Satan if we did not explain to you that you are going to suffer. Not just from the normal pains in this life, but following him is going to hurt. It's going to cost you. Not in a way that makes you earn your salvation. There's only one cross that can save and it's not yours, it's his. But how you suffer will either increase your confidence that you're God's child or it will erode your confidence that you're God's child. So if you want to know if you're following him, if, if you want to know that you're not ashamed, what do you do? You take up your cross and you quit running to your quick fix messiahs. You quit running to your sin. There's nothing left for you there. You say Jesus is worth it? Let's prove it. 
Jesus was lifted on that cross way up high so he could sit down in the dumps with those who are suffering. He knows your suffering. He sees you as you suffer privately with your own sin. He knows. He knows the pain that that can cause. He sees you when you are out in the world and society is making you suffer for following him. He knows. But he says, pull up a seat at my table, the table of suffering. Take up your cross, plant it right next to mine. I'm not ashamed of you. I know you and I'm not ashamed of you. Are you ashamed of me? Come, hang with me a while, and you'll begin to see glory. Now, this may be a little bit confusing to us in our day and age, but this was crystal clear to the people who were first reading Mark's Gospels. You know, a lot of smart commentators and stuff, they say that Mark was writing to Christians living in Rome. Those same Christians were going to be drug out of their homes in the, the coming decades after this was written. They're, they're going to be thrown into the gladiatorial arena. They're, they're going to be ripped apart by lions as they hear the crowd, you know, cheering on above them. And, and their Jesus wasn't far away on some cloud eating a grape or something. He was with them in the pain because he is a God who suffers. And that is what gave them the strength to carry on whenever their life was terrible. You know, you may say, I may say, Jesus, I, I'm suffering as it is. You know, I'm falling apart. My family has abandoned the faith, and I don't think I can do this alone. My loved ones have died, and I am heartbroken, and I just don't know how you can ask anything more of me. Can't you just let me numb the pain? My marriage is falling apart. I don't think I can keep this going. The meds that I need for my own good, they are, they are making reality seem so blurry and my emotions toward you feel so numbing and I just don't even know what you expect from me at times. You look at my career, I'm not where I thought I was going to be. I wanted to do so much more for you and for the world, but here I am. Can't you just rescue me now? Why are you asking me to take up a cross? I just can't see the point. And if you're not going to help me, I'll find a Messiah who will. You ever feel like that? Me too. Jesus, please heal us. Please heal us quickly. You know, things like this can be so discouraging to us at times. We read scripture passages and sometimes they just beat us up because they show how far from the glory of God we have fallen. But it's just the tone of the passage. It's Jesus' words. I'm sure Peter was shaking in his boots when Jesus called him Satan. But we need to listen because these passages can bruise us. Yesterday, some of us played paintball. A little bit of levity here. Some of us played paintball. And uh, I've got bruises all over. Like Mansion shot me right here and it hurts. There's a big circle. Um, sometimes texts like this can bruise us, even scare us. It's okay to feel that though. But don't waste that feeling. Because it is here to drive us to Jesus. So I want to be crystal clear with you. 
Taking up your cross means seeing a purpose in the suffering that you have right now in your life. Seeing the glory of God in it. Seeing Jesus in the midst of it. Finding comfort and compassion and union with him there. And following him into even more suffering because you're with him and trusting yourself to him. See, taking up your cross is never about saving yourself. You know, that said, there's only one cross that can save you, and it's not yours. And taking up your cross, no, taking up your cross, it's about guarding your own soul. You gain the whole world, you, you alleviate your suffering here, and you lose your soul because you've chased after another Messiah, you've lost everything. You know, if, if there is a snake in, in your baby's room or in the nursery, what do you do with that snake? You kill that snake. If there is some sin in your life that you have been running to to satisfy your pain, you kill that sin. You kill that snake. You don't let anything harm your relationship with your Messiah. Don't let anything pull you away from him. And beware especially of sin that sneaks in during times of suffering, whenever you're down and out and in pain. And look, in our blurry-eyed state, you and I are gonna mess this up. Our prescription lenses may get better through the years, but we are still waiting on us, or waiting on him to fully heal us. First John uh, chapter three says that whenever Jesus comes back, we're gonna be like him because we're gonna see him as he is. And we're gonna be able to see like his. And, and, and that's going to be a miracle. And today, at the beginning of this text, we saw that Jesus worked a miracle on that blind man. It is about him working a miracle in us because we need to see like Jesus. So I want to close this whole study this morning on, on looking at Jesus and seeing the way that he saw. I want to see what Jesus' vision was. Hopefully, if we see that, he's going he's to work his miraculous power in us. Today. So Jesus had clear vision, and he saw the glory of God in suffering. The God of glory is the God who suffers. But look at verse 1, I mean 31. He knows exactly what his suffering is going to look like. Rejection by these religious leaders and death. And when Peter got in the way of this, his critique of Peter was that he didn't set his mind on the things of God. He didn't see things the way God sees them. And so this really comes to a head as, as Jesus is the one who sees the way God sees. Jesus is the good one. And he has his mind set fully on the things of God because they are one. Jesus' is, Jesus is mind is set on the full plan of salvation, and it's not a quick fix. He set his mind fully on the agreement that he had with the Father before time began. Long before the first Adam existed, or the first plant, or the first ray of sunshine, long before the first man and woman were made from, from the dirt, before all of it, the eternal Son of God made a pact with God the Father to die for the sins of God's elect people. And as the ages rolled on and mankind set their eyes not on the things of God anymore, but on their own stuff, on themselves, as they spurned and rejected this God, Jesus watched and he waited. Why? Because his eyes were looking at you. 
And in the coming chapters of Mark, we see that his willingness to suffer for you came from this. He set, his mind was set, you know, as Judas betrayed him. His, his mind was set as he was bruised and, and beaten. His mind was set as, as nails were hammered through his hand and his feet. His mind was set as he let out that final cry and his heart stopped beating. He was clearly visualizing that promise that he made with the Father to save you. The God of glory is the God who suffers and he did it for you. Resurrection Church and friends gather today. In light of all of this, take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, heal us. Give us eyes to see. Be near us. Amen.